Welcome to the Stepping In a Podcast. I'm Renee Schulte. And I'm Jason Haglund. We're here to dive deep into the complex, often overwhelming world of behavioral systems, structures, and the never-ending barriers. That's right, Jason. We know firsthand the challenges individuals and families face when trying to access and navigate the behavioral health system. We want to save you from stepping in the crap we've encountered with many of our clients. Together, we'll be shedding light on the issues and opportunities within the behavioral health system. By sharing stories, discussing policy implications, we will offer up valuable insights and practical solutions for improving the system at every level. So grab a cup of coffee or something stronger, or in Jason's case, a venti peppermint mocha. Sit back and get ready to step in the world of behavioral health with the Stepping In It podcast. Good morning, Renee, and welcome to another episode. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm struggling. It's harvest time and the dust Uh this year, Renee. The dust is unbelievable. That sounds like your voice is taking the brunt of that, huh? It has taken the brunt of that. I, I know when we talked about doing a podcast, I didn't think about dust and allergies and all the things that happen when you come out of a drought and are trying to harvest. So here we are, first thing yeah. in the morning, after me being in a dust bowl for the entire weekend. <laughs> yeah, we have a we have a farmer across the street here, and that's all you could see was just a plume of dust above. And it wasn't a lot of a breeze, so it just made this kind of a dusty, uh, hazy situation over my house as well. So I get it. Luckily for me, though, I got to stay inside and avoid being outdoors as much as you. So what are we talking about today, Jason? Well, I think today let's talk about mobile crisis and mobile crisis response and what it should look like. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of times what it shouldn't look like, but let's kind of talk about, you know, what we've seen and kind of what it's intended to do. So, Renee, do you want to talk to us about what's been happening with 988 and mobile response over the last decade that has really transformed that whole area? Yeah, so prior to 988, uh, mobile crisis response has been one of the newer uh, pieces of the code that we've added here in our state that allows people to have a response. So instead of just calling someone and only maybe talking to 911 as you did in the past, it was actually linked and dispatched to someone who could come to you. And in many times when we find people in crisis, right, some of that challenge is transportation or just rural in nature and not being able to get to a service. And so mobile response originally was built so that people could go out to them um, and respond just as if like you were having a heart attack or, you know, you fell off a ladder at your house or heaven forbid, got stuck in one of your corn bins, right? There's a mobile response where people come to you to try to offer assistance. And that's the goal of mobile crisis. And when we moved to 988 recently, which in the last year, year and a half, there were three goals of 988. And we've talked about this before, but I'm going to go over it briefly here. The three goals of 988 was to answer the call in a timely manner. So we were talking like within the first 20, 30 seconds. And then there's a mobile response. And so this now is going to be tied to that 988 system, same mobile response we're referring to here. And then the third leg of that stool was to be a place to go. And so we're going to put in the show notes what that looks like in SAMHSA. Um, if you want to know more about that, what mobile response should look like, we're going to add that to the show notes. That sounds fantastic. You know, and I think about how successful 988 has been. And really, when we go back 
you know, in time a little bit, hotlines have been very successful in reaching people um, and giving people that outlet. And mobile crisis is really the next steps to how do we respond to that very small percentage of individuals who need a mobile outreach, um, those individuals most at risk. And, and so I think it's really a perfect time for this to roll out. Um, I'm excited, aren't you, Renee? I am. I'm really excited to see what it looks like. So for those that are not aware, in the state of Iowa, we wrote the code for what mobile response should look like. Actually, I helped write that code. Uh, literally, I uh, wrote the rules for that back in 2013, I would guess it would be. Um, a mobile response was added to our code. But it wasn't until a little bit later, I think closer to 2017, when we really prioritized crisis services that it came to the forefront as something that should be happening as part of our core services. Prior to that law, it was in there as things, if people had money, if they were already doing the basics of what was supposed to be done, they could do it. And then it got moved into the core. So what that means is for anyone that lives in our state, Jason, they should expect mobile response. It's actually required service that our regions are to do. Yeah, you know, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Does everyone experience that? Does everyone know that? Have Has the state done a good enough job of really educating people as to these resources? And so I, I think, you know, we can take pause and think about, although some of the structure is in place, are we really getting there, right? And, you know, as I think about data, right, what informs us if a system is working or not? It's data. And we always take a minute and, and kind of think about, talk about the data that supports is this working? Is this not working? And, you know, I've, I've seen some recent call center data. I've seen some 988 data that shows, you know, that, that skyrocket of calls after July when they moved to 988. Mm. Um, there was a big burst of kind of advertising marketing around 988. Um, we saw a huge uptake of people calling 988, of people texting 988. The messaging went up. Um, you know, I know some of the farm stress crisis hotlines do a lot of data analysis as well. And so they're getting more sophisticated in, in how they're tracking as well, right? Because there's other hotlines other than 988 that we can look to where people, especially in rural communities, you know, where do, where do they reach out? You know, I just saw one study was just redone by Dr. Michael Roseman. And when we talk about rural, we have to mention Dr. Michael Roseman a little bit. And he's kind of went back and reanalyzed some data. And why do people call hotlines in the first place? It's marital and family concerns, it's problems coping with daily activities, it's feeling depressed, and it's finances, right? Um, coming in at the bottom of that list is substance abuse. But those mm -hmm. those top stressors are why people call. Um, you know, and really when we think about mobile crisis, is we think about which of those stressors then are leading to suicidal ideation or 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 something very serious, that there needs to be an immediate intervention and that response. And so it's good for us sometimes to step back and look at that data. Where, where are people calling? Why are they calling? And what are we missing in our local communities? Yeah. And so one of the things that people that are listening should know is we actually have access standards in our code um, that we're going to put in the show notes, the administrative code, if you want to see what mobile response is supposed to be. And there's two pieces in our state that we're going to talk about in a little while uh, that I don't think are working quite as intended. And one is the response time. Um, the response time is within 60 minutes. And you can guess that it's within 60 minutes sounds like a really long time if you're you know, needing help. But at the same time, it's also given that we're a rural state, it's a challenge to get somebody to respond to that rural location in 60 minutes. And we'll talk about why that's a hard, but you can guess, right? Distance between people makes that difficult as well as sometimes we just don't have the workforce to make that. So 
But if you think about where the code says that people are supposed to respond, and this list always gets me because we've heard so many stories we'll talk about in a minute of this not being the case, but what it says in the code is that they're supposed to respond to all sorts of places, including but not limited to the person's residence, could be in an emergency room, a police station, an outpatient mental health counseling setting, a school, a recovery center, or any other location where the individual lives, works, attends school, or socializes. That means mobile response can go anywhere. And I know, Jason, we've heard that there are places that only respond to the emergency room. And that seems super backwards to us because, you know, we're supposed to be getting people in advance so that they don't have to make it to the emergency room. But we'll talk about that more in just a minute. So tell us about the data. I know, Jason, you've been working with the MAC committee here in our state, and you are well aware of how many people we served using this service in 2022. What did you learn when you talked about that conversation? Well, I I don't know what I learned. I I learned that either um, the providers of this service don't know how to bill Medicaid, um, or we just are really bad at doing um, mobile crisis in the state of Iowa because only a handful of people were billed, right? 120, you know, at one point was the data that I saw. And I'm like, how can that be for the whole year? Wow. I know there were more crises than that, just in the context we have, Renee, of working across the state. So, you know, I scratch my head because, you know, one of the other things I'm going to link in this podcast in, in the show notes is, is go in and read that roadmap to an ideal crisis system. The National Council to Mental Well-Being has put down a really great document co-chaired by Dr. Kenneth Minkoff. And we've talked a lot about Minkoff before. He's done a lot of work in the state of Iowa going way back, you know, in, in the past couple of decades. And it's a really good document that outlines what should these things look like. And the basis of all of it is financing. Um, you know, there has to be a way to fund a behavioral health system when it comes to a crisis behavioral health system. And so when I look at the data, we can see that if that foundation and structure isn't there, then we don't have good utilization. We don't have good scope of being able to go out and deliver these services. And so, you know, I think that's the first red flag as to what are we building as we continue to grow this system if foundationally it's not structural or have the integrity it needs to build upon. Right. Well, I was looking at some other data and this one's pretty disheartening because there's an entire system being created in the state next to us in the state of Missouri called the Mobile Integrated Healthcare Network. And that sounds like that would be amazing, right? You're having mobile integrated healthcare. It sounds like that would be something exactly like we would need because integrated healthcare is important. But guess what they left out, Jason? Can you believe it? What would they leave out of an integrated healthcare system if you had to guess? I'm sure they left out substance use disorders. Absolutely, they did, as well as mental health. And so we're sending people out mobily to help people in rural communities. And it's built specifically to help rural communities, which is awesome. So they're bringing kind of health care to you, which is great, but they don't include anything that has anything to do with mental health. And I know uh, for us, that just drives us crazy because mental health care is health care. I don't know how many times we're going to have to say that on this podcast, but that's the beating drum. The theme through all of these always is mental health care is health care. So when you build a system for mobile response that doesn't include addiction or substance use or, or mental health, what are we doing? How is that integrated? I just don't understand. And so it's continuing. This is a current, you know, one of those trends that people are promoting as something that's current and unique and, you know, forward thinking, except it leaves out a large part of the population that has a crisis. And so 
Once again, I don't know that we're always thinking about how the system should work. You can get it written down like we have in code, but that doesn't mean it gets implemented correctly. So what are some of the challenges we're seeing um, as we talk to communities around the Midwest? What are some of those challenges that we're hearing, Jason? What are we listening to? And what are people saying to us when we're talking about what's not working quite right in mobile response? Well, it, it always starts with geography, right, Renee? So geography and workforce is always where we start. And I guess, you know, I want to kind of step back and and just, you know, let's reimagine. And I'd like to go back and know, did, did people used to have these conversations when we started the first fire department? You know, I, I look at our local fire departments based on townships. It's not even by counties. It's by townships within the county. And response was very local, right? It was a community helping the local community. I don't necessarily get that sense as we think about developing out um, mobile crisis. It seems as though we start with some of the largest regions in the state for coverage and then give a huge 60-minute window for assistance, which really isn't realistic based upon if we were a first responder or if you're a, a fire department. Even fire departments in rural areas, they may be volunteer, but they have a workforce. They figure out a way to respond to emergencies. And if if we're going to talk about suicide and emotional crisis as an emergency, um, then we need to not separate it out from other emergencies and actually get honest about what a response should look like and not make excuses for why we can't do that. And so we have to start there with the foundation that we make excuses for the behavioral health system not responding more than we do actually empowering it to respond in an appropriate way. Right. And from that perspective, to me, and maybe I'm crazy, but tying this system to the other system that already does that correctly might be the better way to go, right? Instead of creating, like you're saying, completely separate providers trying to cover a state, you know, why aren't we working in partnership with the other emergency services? And I know that may be part of what we're doing in some places, but it's not in others. So Jason, talk to us about that. What are the, what are, we have four different versions of this model just in our state alone. Uh, so what, what are those models and how do they tie into our existing system and how are they separate? Yeah. So, you know, in general, we have four models. One is a co-responder model and that's law enforcement um, and those crisis workers at the local um, community level working together. So generally, it's a law enforcement officer and a civilian with behavioral health experience that can go out and respond to that mobile crisis. It's generally um, accessed through calling um, 911, but can also be um, 911 in some areas is rolling callers to 988 once they do an initial screening, which I think is fantastic, right? Because there should be a lot of interplay between 911 and 988 or whatever your local crisis number is. Um, there's the model that's just the community-based, you know, so it could be your CCBHC or your community-based provider that does mobile crisis, that does it on their own. Um, sometimes they have a relationship with law enforcement. Sometimes they don't. Um, and it confuses me when they don't because I don't understand how they can respond to a, to the community without a partnership. There's some law enforcement entities that they do it all themselves, right? And so CIT training, crisis intervention training is a great model um, that educates teams of officers in mental health crisis and they go out and respond. And then we've seen some of this popping up and you talked, Renee, in, in Missouri um, about a paramedic model, right? That they go out and do, do outreach for physical health issues. They're not doing mental health. Um, but we have a couple programs here in the state of Iowa, you know, in, in Ames, they have paramedic teams going out um, with a social worker um, and doing community visits. Kinda, um, right? Because it's only eight to five Monday through Friday right now. It was a pilot project. But, you know, an, an interesting way to use resources of folks who may be available to respond to an emergency. 
Yeah, I know when I was an in-home family therapist, um, I had a caseload for a while that was a lot of folks that were um, in juvenile detention or had gotten in trouble with the law. And oftentimes, if you've got kids that are in that space, majority of the time, so were their parents. And so I would end up going to the homes. And there were particular cases that I remember specifically people saying to me, hey, let somebody know before you go and make sure you let somebody know that you've come out. And we weren't in partnership necessarily with law enforcement, but boy, would I have felt better had I been. And so I know when you're thinking about, you know, there's a lot of push in our state to have 100% folks that are not law enforcement respond, but there's a lot of dangerous situations where having been one of those people myself, I can see both sides of that. I realized that the Some of the early um, anecdotal research is saying that people, you know, de-escalate faster if there's not someone there in uniform or if there's not someone there in law enforcement alongside, and that sometimes blows up that emergency. But on the other side, as the person who used to respond, um, going without a law enforcement person, it, it takes a whole lot of courage and a lot of guts because you have no idea what you're walking into um, when you're going to someplace with someone in crisis. And so um, I know we have these four different versions. It's going to be really interesting to see how this all pans out. Uh, there's a new study coming along in our state where the goal is to put all this together, right? To look at what the crisis 988 system should look like because we have some of that that's by 911 still to 988 and some that are going directly to 988 and trying to figure out what's that going to look like in the state kind of more standardized, but also these four different models that we sort of have and figuring out, you know, what may be the best model. And I'm not sure, I mean, to to your point, Jason, about how paramedics and firefighters are in the local communities, not partnering with them may seem crazy, especially in the more rural areas. And so there might have to be some sort of a hybrid blend of a plan because it's just different, you know, our urban areas in what can respond and doesn't look the same. Yeah, for CCBHCs specifically to be successful as we really look at push for implementation, you know, and to expand CCBHC reach across the country, it's going to be essential in rural areas to connect with those volunteer, um, you know, entities, because a lot of work is done through those volunteer paramedics and first responders. And you're missing an opportunity if we don't do that, because I don't think the finances will be there to have a specific mental health professional to respond to crisis in each township across our rural areas. It just doesn't make sense. Right. And to be fair, I mean, thinking about the workforce challenges that we have across the country, right, it's going to have to be where more people that are, that's not their specialty may not be addiction or mental health. They're just going to need to be trained in it if we're going to have a workforce at all. We're not going to be able to keep sitting back waiting for the magic trees to develop the magic people that are just going to fill those workforce holes. And so everybody that we know that, you know, it wants to be a part of the solution is going to need to be trained in some of this in order to be helpful in the situation. Because like I said, there's just not going to be enough of specialists across some of these rural communities to make this happen. So Jason, I know we have some access standards, but what are you hearing out there about what people are saying about access? Are we, are we, are we hitting the mark? Are we missing the mark? I know uh, we're getting some mixed messages in that space. You know, it every time I do trainings all the time, Renee, and so I'll meet with folks from rural areas. I just did a, I just did a training and I had pastors from 14 different congregations across the Northeast part of the state. And I was talking about mental health, right? And I said, well, you all know who your mobile crisis team is, right? And I keep thinking it's going to get better, right? 
inevitably three quarters of the room looks at me and goes, a what? We can call a who? They'll come to my church when? And I said, well, you need to get to know these folks. But there's still a lack of recognition that it's even a thing. And it's kind of disheartening um, because some of the situations people describe to me are real safety issues that a mobile crisis team would have been perfect to come and help to deal with that situation. And so it hurts a little bit that we need to do something differently because what we're doing today isn't working. Well, the other one that was my favorite, like we worked in another location and we're chatting about the response time of that 60 minutes, right? And the uh, providers are assuring us, oh yeah, they're making 60 minutes, but law enforcement has already moved on. That's not fast enough for law enforcement. They don't want to have to wait 60 minutes for a crisis team to show up. Even though that's the regulations, you know, law enforcement is complaining that that's not fast enough because they need to move on faster than that. And law enforcement stays involved until there's a stabilization plan or a situation for someone, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. So it just becomes a kind of this tension and push pull where law enforcement gets stuck staying longer than they need to to be able to do their jobs. And yet we don't get crisis response there fast enough to take over for law enforcement. And it sort of goes around and around. And, you know, we've sat in those rooms where people are saying, oh, yeah, we always make it within 60 minutes. But yet when we talk to people that are actually uh, out there um, needing help or seeking help, that they're like, oh, my gosh, it was what was that in one state they were telling us it was like two days later. I mean, what kind of crisis response is two days later? And so there's just a lot of a mess, right? So yes, there's access standards in place, but I'm not really sure we're actually holding people to the standard. And so that's not really helping implement this or raise the bar, if you will. It's exactly right. You know, and so I like to just kind of think of it like this. There's clinical best practices. You have to have the services and the capacity for the system to respond to those. And at the end of the day, you need the accountability and the finances to be able to sustain that. Um, And all of those things have to come together, right, to support that individual in crisis. And when we don't have all those things coming together, the system's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've come to the time in our podcast where I'm going to talk about the recovering politician self-care tip of the week. But like Jason started out, he's been talking about some of the stress and some of the physical stress his body's been under just with all the dirt and stuff and during harvest season. But boy, my work life has just been crazy lately. And so I'm under a little more stress than typical. So when that happens, I have to take care of myself because I too will get sick if I don't do that. So one of the things I've tried to do, and it's funny, I'm going to say this, but then couch it a little bit because of the dust. I do try to take a short walk outside for fresh air whenever I can. But fresh air has been hmm, kind of questionable this year sometimes because of fires or because of harvest dust and just the general drought that we've had. So getting fresh air sometimes can be a little more challenging. But I know for myself, being able to be out of an office building or out from under artificial lights in the sunshine and just being able to be outside is one small thing that I can do that can help reground me and help me kind of get that break that I need and kind of break the stress. And so even if I'm working um, just getting up and walking to a different location sometimes just gets that my brain a break just enough to be able to, you know, start to get my breathing under control and, and calm back down. So, Jason, I know you've been really busy and stressful during the harvest season. What have you been doing to try to take care of you? Well, you know, I'm still trying to get a run in now and then when I can, but when I'm sitting for 12 hours a day in a combine, kind of cuts into that time, right? So, thinking a little bit about my eating habits, I tend to spend a little more time in Casey's eating pizza, which 
probably isn't the best way to get my calories. Let's just put it that way when I'm sitting in sitting in that cab for 12 hours a day. So I'm I'm retooling right now, Renee. I'm kind of refocusing in on what I should be doing for self-care as, as we head into this holiday season. It's going to come up on us quickly. And we know that doesn't go well generally when it comes to eating habits either. So I, I think I'm I'm officially in a refocus phase of, of how do you adapt when you're under stress and doing different things because you lose your routine. And so it's really tough when you when you lose your regular routine, it's a little easier to stray a little bit from those things that work really well. And so we all need to think about that when think times get busy, when you know life gets busy for people. And so we need to think about how do we keep to those good, healthy habits, even when things kind of get disrupted, because that's when it's the easy time to just like, well, I'm just going to have McDonald's one day, um, or I'm mm-hmm. just going to grab a breakfast sandwich today. I grab a mocha every day. So that doesn't count. That was excluded <laughs> from the beginning. Um, but I will tell you this, this week was the first week I, I went through and they pre-made my mochas while I'm standing oh, while I'm driving through the drive up window. So I realized at that moment, Renee, um, that I do need to refocus my healthy habits. You're a little predictable in that space. Well, what can we do? Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. Today, we focused on the goal of mobile crisis response. We talked about some of the data around that topic and uh, the way that the the vision of what it could be. And we're really excited about that vision. But as we always talk about, there's a little bit of a challenge when it comes to implementation. And so we were helped to share some of those stories with you. But next week, we're going to be talking about crisis as far as stabilization goes. And we're going to be focusing directly on community crisis. Uh, but we also may be touching on some of the residential crisis services and letting you know more about that. So if you wanted to download any of the information that we gave you today, it'll be in the show notes. And we'd love you to come over to see us on our webpage, which you can find us at ruralpolicypartners.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on our episode of the Stepping In It podcast. We hope that our discussions and insights have provided you with a deeper understanding of the Baby Rail system and the challenges that it presents. Remember, we're here to help you navigate the complexities that keep your shoes clean from avoiding stepping into the crap we've encountered through our careers. If you have any questions or you want to recommend to us what products you use to keep your boots clean, we're open to that. And we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us at ruralpolicypartners.com or follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking conversations, expert interviews, and practical solutions in the episodes to come. Together, we can work towards creating a more accessible and effective behavioral health system for everyone. We can do so much more by working together and talking about it. Until next time, I'm Renee Schulte, the recovering politician. And I'm Jason Hagelin, the khaki farmer. Thanks for listening to the Stepping In It podcast.